absurd to try to do justice to Zionism in, in an hour. That's not the only topic that we dreadfully cheat over here. Especially when you're over here for two and a half weeks. But I, I just want you to appreciate that all we can do is discuss some isolated points which I hope are interesting and then I'll give you some time for questions. And then those of us that are still alive will walk out the door. <laughs> but I warn you, I'm a veteran of many of these battles, so the odds are probably on my side. Uh, I want to briefly discuss with you six different positions vis-a-vis Zionism. Six different positions. I'll describe them to you, the strengths and weaknesses, and I will dwell more on the religious positions because they're closest to us. And then I will make some remarks about serving in the army, and then I'll be done. The six positions divide up as follows. Some are pro-Zionism and some are anti-Zionism. Then it's subdivided into religious and irreligious. So you got religious pro-Zionism and irreligious pro-Zionism, religious anti-Zionism and, and religious and irreligious anti-Zionism. The two largest groups, and with them I will start, are the two irreligious pro-Zionist groups. The largest is the group founded by Herzl, which could be called international assimilation, meaning that the goal of Zionism is a state just like other states, a normal state, which means a secular state on the Western liberal democratic pattern. Civil rights, no preferred culture, democracy, secular citizenship, citizenship for people of all origins and backgrounds. Herzl was totally uninterested in what language would be spoken in the new state. There's no interest in it whatsoever. If Ben Yehuda could convince people to speak Hebrew, that's fine. If you want to speak Italian, it's fine. If you want to speak Esperanto, which was the going international language at the time, it's fine. If you want to have a polyglot of languages, also fine. Where should the new state be? Now here, uh, people have forgotten the key piece of this. <coughs> they remember that at the Zionist Congress, there was a proposal for Uganda. That's become famous. And it was discussed seriously. What they don't know is that in Herzl's own book, The Zionist State, he has a section entitled Palestine or Argentina. And he makes a brief for both places. Argentina, he says, is a very large country and most of it is unsettled. 
and there is already an illegal infiltration of Jews into Argentina which causes trouble. And therefore it would be in the interests of Argentina to cede us a portion of its territory so that we could set up a legitimate state instead of illegitimately infiltrating into their country. They should just give us part of their country. Or, he says, we could go to Palestine. Our unforgettable homeland, he calls it. Which means that if we're in Argentina, we won't forget it. We'll have a Palestine Day once a year or something. It's unforgettable. Unforgettable. We could go to Argentina. No, we could go to Palestine. We would have to convince the Sultan of Turkey, because Palestine was under the control of the Turkish at the time. We have to convince the Sultan of Turkey to give us Palestine. How could we do that? We could, well, we could volunteer to administer his finances. Isn't that what the Jews are good at? Managing money? <laughs> so we'll offer to manage his money in return for which he'll give us Palestine. And he says, we will take whatever the world community wants to offer us or whatever the Zionist uh, movement decides to accept. He speaks of transferring to the new state the most advanced values that the Jews can bring with them from their current homes. The most advanced values of Germany and Italy and Spain, the United States. I don't think I should even put Britain on the list, but he didn't mean to include Britain. Haven't we suffered enough from the British? <laughs> the idea that there would be any specifically Jewish values in the state was completely out of the question. There's no reference to the Bible, to the Talmud, to the Midrash, to the Jewish religion altogether. And Herzl predicted that the movement would gain the support of European powers because the European powers have an insoluble problem of anti-Semitism. They all have sizable Jewish minorities. And they all have sizable anti-Semitic populations. <coughs> Now, what shall the government do, said Herzl? Shall it protect the Jews against the anti-Semites? Then it comes into conflict with its own population. Shall it side with the anti-Semites against the Jews? The Jews have international connections and monetary influence, and the government will find itself in trouble. Shall the government ignore the problem? then the Jews will be victimized by the anti-Semites and they'll be driven into the hands of revolutionaries. There is no solution for these governments how to solve their internal problem of anti-Semitism. So, said Herzl, when I come riding in on my white horse and I propose to them the solution, namely... Let me take all your Jews away. That will solve your problem. 
They will be so overjoyed that they will offer me, us, money, political support, protection, and the kind of leverage that Europe knows how to use to convince someone to give us a piece of land. Herzl envisioned Zionism as a messiah. A messiah for the Jews and a messiah for Europe to rid itself of its Jewish problem. Herzl never dreamt in his wildest nightmare that Europe would conceive of a different solution to its Jewish problem. Not Zionism, not a Jewish state, but murdering all its Jews. That wasn't in his worldview. That wasn't in his plan. And then when the state is established, what's going to happen? Herschel and his friends predicted this in a very mechanical fashion. When the state is established, the vast majority of Jews will come home to the state. Left behind will be a small minority of the very wealthy and the very assimilated. Within a generation, they will disappear. There will be no connections between the Jewish state and external Jewish populations because it won't exist. And to be a Jew will mean being an Israeli. Citizenship of the Jewish state will take over to define what it is to be a Jew from the older religious identification. That was the prediction. Now, I will just point out that all of these predictions came out false but one. Herzl is regarded pretty much like a prophet in other circles. He conceived of a state, he predicted the state, and it happened. This man has got to be a political genius. He has to be in touch with the essence of the political, social, uh, psychological, economic realities. How else could you conceive an idea and predict so profound a result and get it right? But when you look at his predictions in detail, you see that every one of them in detail came out false. Europe did not volunteer, and the Argentinians didn't invite us to take some of their country. When is the last time you heard of a country voluntarily giving up some of its... Maybe, maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't answer that. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, well, it, it very rarely happens, okay? It almost never happens. You know, sane countries don't do that. <laughs> if we happen to be sitting here, that may have some unfortunate... But at any rate, it's certainly very, very rare. And Argentina didn't do it, and the South of Turkey didn't do it, and Europe didn't do it. And indeed, when the country was established, the vast majority of Jews did not come home. And to this day, the majority of Jews have not come home. And there is a very profound relationship between Israel and external Jewish populations of support in both directions. Israel did heroic actions for the Jews in, in Russia. American Jews have been instrumental, I would say essential, in support of the state. Every one of the predictions in detail has come out false. If so, don't be overwhelmed by getting the prediction of the state right. I'll give you an analogy. 
Someone comes to your house and he investigates the electric wiring. And he says, listen, the electric wiring is no good and you're in high risk of having a fire. Two months later, your house is struck by lightning and burns to the ground. And he comes and says, see, I told you! <laughs> um, I don't think you'll be impressed. The lightning strike is no confirmation of the incompetency of your wiring. It was electric. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay, that's the hurtful position. The second irreligious pro-Zionist movement was the Eastern European movement led by Achad Am, who believed that Jews are special. They have a special gift. Something which distinguishes Jews and the Jewish culture and civilization from other peoples. And Zionism, they said, has to be a vehicle for realizing and expressing this special Jewish gift. What gift is that? A higher level of morality. It is the prophets who taught the world about justice and about concern and brotherhood. And we have a continuing job to bring the world to a more civilized, ethical standing. And such a task cannot really be successful unless you have your own functioning state in which you can show the greatness of your morality and thereby impress the rest of the world. Now, Haraan was not religious. Sometimes he was described as an agnostic. He certainly wasn't, wasn't religious. And this position that although I'm not religious, we do have a higher morality than other cultures, as you could imagine, excited a certain amount of opposition. The Herzl group argued back, if you're really not religious, if you're really not appealing to God, how then do you claim that your values are higher than anybody else's values? Surely you have to recognize that values are man-made, and Eskimo values and Nigerian values and uh, South African values, <laughs> maybe that's about more. And uh, Los Angeles and the rest are just variations on human sensitivities and sensibilities. And you certainly can't give yourself leave to pass judgment on other people's eyes. The hurtful response was, we want a state not for the purpose of realizing Jewish values, but for an end unto itself. Achieving a state and normal national life is an end unto itself. Okay, that's the two, two largest Zionist movements, irreligious pro-Zionists. You had irreligious anti-Zionist movements. These have both collapsed as anti-Zionists. So I'll just mention them briefly. The reform movement opposed Zionism up through the founding of the state because they said it will cause a rise in anti-Semitism for Jews around the world whose home countries will not be able to distinguish between being Jewish, being Israeli, being a loyal American or disloyal American. 
And therefore, it's going to be a catastrophe for Jews around the world. But then after a few years, reform changed its mind, and now, of course, is pro-Zionist. Communism opposed, Jewish communists opposed the founding of a state, because all states are passé. States are going to fade out of existence. That was, that was what Marx taught. So you're taking a step backwards by founding a new state. You're going against history. But communism has collapsed also. And therefore, those movements no longer count. Then you have the religious anti-Zionists. These are people who feel that the state is illegitimate. The Knesset should abdicate and let it be taken over by Yasser Arafat or by King Abdullah or the United Nations or anybody but Jews. Just give it up. Now, I want you to know this is a very small group. If there are two million Jews in the world who identify themselves as religious, I think that's a reasonable number. Of those two million, certainly no more than 100,000 at the outside are religious anti-Zionists in this sense, who believe the state should not exist and it should go back to Jordan or to the PLO or to somebody else. Probably less than that. Now, they get a lot of press and they really are painted as insane. So let me give you a peek into their mental set. This won't do really justice, but it will give you a peek. These people hold that Zionism caused the Holocaust. Now just imagine for a moment you believe that. I know you don't believe it. You don't believe it. I don't believe it. Yeshiva doesn't believe it. You've never met anybody in this group, I'll bet. Certainly nobody in this yeshiva is in this group. But just exercise your imagination for a moment, you know? Think yourself to the other side of the moon. Imagine you believe that Zionism caused the Holocaust. Would you be for or against? Try to figure this out. This is a tough one. Right? If you thought that Zionism caused the Holocaust, you would definitely be against. You would regard Zionism as the worst catastrophe in the last 2,000 years for Judaism. And the worst continuing danger. By the way, just a little statistic that you should, should uh, be aware of. Since 1948, what has been the most dangerous place for Jews to live on the planet? Any big city in America? Israel. Israel, by far. By far. More Jews, and more Jews by percentage, have died in Israel than any other place in the world. In the War of Independence alone, 6,000 Jews died. That was 1% of the total population. So if you think that uh, Israeli defense forces mean you're more secure here than other, uh, other places, just check the figures. You'll find out this is the least secure place for Jews continuously since 1948. Now, uh, I'm going to have to ask you to hold the question until I'm finished, because if I start with one question, I'll never finish. Um, 
How could it be that the the Zionists have caused the Holocaust? Let me read you a quote from a fellow named Arthur Hertzberg, who is a conservative rabbi. I mean, he's not orthodox, so that means everything he says is true and valid and objective and fair and, and balanced and, and scholarly. And you know, if he's orthodox, you wouldn't be able to trust him. But since he's not orthodox, and he's a historian, he's a Jewish historian. There's a book called The Zionist Idea. This has been a textbook of Zionism for the past 40 years. He's the editor of the book, and he wrote a 95-page introduction to the book, giving a history of the Zionist movement and all of its various facets. I commend it to you. It's the best single piece of writing on Zionism of which I'm aware. And again, the author, the author is not orthodox. Now, here's what he writes. Zionism is the most radical attempt in Jewish history. <coughs> to break out of the parochial molds of Jewish life in order to become part of the general history of man in the modern world. Again, Zionism is the most radical attempt in Jewish history. This is a historian speaking. He's talking about more than 3,000 years of history. The most radical attempt in all of Jewish history to break out of the parochial molds of Jewish life. That is to say, stop defining yourself by anything that's specifically Jewish. Stop looking at the Bible and at the Talmud and at the Midrash to define who you are and what you are and what you're going to be. Break out of the parochial molds of Jewish life in order to become part of the general history of man in the modern world. You're a man like other men. You have a nation like other nations. You have values like other values. You're part of an international community. Stop defining yourself as Jewish, as different, as separate, as isolated, as unique. The most radical attempt in Jewish history. Now, to break out of the parochial molds of Jewish life, translation is, stop using the Torah to define yourself. The most radical attempt in history, in Jewish history, to break with the Torah. No. Just imagine he's right. This non-Orthodox Jewish historian. Now imagine how God looks at it. This is the most radical attempt in all of Jewish history to throw away the Torah. Would it be shocking if that elicited a radical response? The most radical attempt in all of Jewish history to throw the Torah away? Elicited a radical response? Would that be a shocking equation? I don't think that's so crazy. I don't agree with it. And the Jew doesn't agree with it, but it's not crazy. It's a view. So their view is that the, that Zionism was extraordinarily uh, tragic for Jewish people and has the potentiality to continue to be tragic in that way and therefore should be opposed absolutely until the Messiah comes. That's the religious anti-Zionist. Okay, now we come to the last two groups, the religious pro-Zionists. There are two that I'm calling religious pro-Zionists. Not everybody would agree with my terminology, but since I'm giving this year, I get to use the words. One group says that the current state of Israel is the beginning of the messianic era we have entered the period of the Messiah 
what is built now is going to be incorporated into the reign of the Messiah. He will set up his throne in the Knesset building, perhaps otherwise decorated, and he will announce his decrees on Kol Yisrael, Reshet Alf, and he will fly around in a special El Al plane. And the whole infrastructure will become part of the Messianic Kingdom. We have entered that period in which God is building the kingdom of the Messiah. This group claims to know this for sure. It's not a doubt. It's not a bet. They know it. Therefore, they hold that every Jew has a religious obligation to play a full role of citizenship in the state of Israel. It's a religious obligation. I'm going to tell you something which is true philosophically and ought to be true politically. I thought it was until someone pointed out to me that it isn't. Some people are confused about this. But this is the correct view for them. There cannot be loyalty to a state. No religious Jew can be loyal to a state. A religious Jew has only one loyalty. Can you guess? You say Shema twice a day. And when you say Shema twice a day, you're pledging allegiance to God. The only loyalty for a religious Jew is to God. However, it might happen, and this is what they claim, that their loyalty to God requires them to support the state, because that's what God wants. But don't be confused. And they shouldn't be confused. It's not that they're loyal to the state. It's that they conceive of it as a mitzvah to support the state. And this mitzvah is something which is an obligation unless the state will require an action that is specifically forbidden by Torah law and then of course you cannot do it. Then you have to disagree and Disobey. But up to that point, voting in the elections and paying your taxes and serving in the army <coughs> and promoting the interests of the state, security, success, honor, reputation, attractiveness to Aliyah, and of course, coming in Aliyah and yourself, is certainly an obligation to support the state in any way because by so doing, you are helping to bring the Messiah. You are helping to build the foundation for the Messianic Kingdom. And that is what you should be doing in this uh, stage of history. That's the fifth group. The first of the religious pro-science. They're sometimes called Mizrahi. I'm sure you figured that out. Then there's another group. The second group simply takes every proposition of the first group and puts after it a question mark. The second group says to everything the first group says for sure, the second group says maybe. Maybe this is the beginning of the Messianic era, and maybe it isn't. Maybe the Messiah will sit in the, in the Knesset, and maybe he won't. Maybe we're building the infrastructure that will be used for the Messiah, and maybe we aren't. 
The second group says there's no way to know for sure. It might be so, and it might not be so. So the second group says, of course, we have an obligation to try to make it so. To try to make it so. But, that is one obligation among many. It's certainly not the most pressing obligation that we have as religious Jews. And secondly, how to fulfill that obligation to make it so is a matter of some controversy. This is much more difficult than it is in the first group. The first group simply says, be as good a citizen as you can, living up to all the obligations of citizenship. In the second group, some say you should fulfill the role of a loyal citizen. Some say the way to make it so is to oppose the state because of its excesses, because of its failures, because of its corruption, because of its anti-religious bias. And some have a mixed position. But this made in some respects and opposed it in other respects. In the second group, there's no uniformity. In the first group, there is very large uniformity. In the second group, there's no uniformity because it is an inherently mixed position. Now, there is some debate between the two groups. And I will just take you through a few rounds of the debate to give you the flavor of it. As I told you, we're not finishing in one hour the whole assignment. The first group says... The prophets predicted that the land would be desolate and unproductive until the Jews come back. And it has been desolate and unproductive really since the Jewish exile 1900 years ago, 1800 years ago. And only with the return of the Jews had the land become productive again. And here you can see the Jews have returned. There are Jews here from every corner of the earth, speaking every language, with every set of customs. So how can you deny that this is the redemption? The prophet said so, black and white. That's group five. Uh, well, the first religious part of that science group. What's your name? Is it a district member? Mizrahi. Uh, Mizrahi, you have a question. No. I'm going back now to Mizrahi, who said for sure. I just explained one of their arguments for saying it for sure. Yeah. Now, I'm going to explain where the question mark comes in. Second group says, the return of the exiles has a legal definition. It's not just a matter of emotions. It's not just a matter of thrilling to hear South American Spanish spoken at the coastal. For the exiles to have returned, the majority of Jews have to be living in the land of Israel. That will trigger certain laws when it happens. And it hasn't happened. So group six says, it's not for sure. Group five says back, but we are in the initial phase of the ingathering of the exiles. So we've pulled in 35% already. We're on the way. In a few more years, it will be more than 50%. Group 6 says back, as long as you are in still the initial phase, you have no guarantee you will ever get to the final phase. You're just hoping you'll get there. You're wishing you'll get there. You're working to get there, but you have no guarantee. Here's an analogy. 
In the year 371 of the Common Era, the Roman Emperor gave permission to rebuild the Temple in Jerusalem. And for two years, Jews gathered funds and laid plans and organized. And in 373, the Emperor said no. Now, if you'll ask an incautious, naive Jew in 372, what are you doing? He might say, I'm building the Third Temple. Was he building the Third Temple? I guess not because 1,700 years have gone by. It's not yet built. So as long as you are in the initial stage, you can't guarantee you'll ever get to the final stage. And therefore, Group 6 says it's only a question mark. What about the productivity of the land? Yes, it is productive. And you know, if you travel from here to Hebron and look on both sides of the road, you'll see beautiful vineyards and orchards blooming with fruit, very productive, all owned by Arabs who are using the money to buy guns to shoot Jews. Now, if you look in the prophets, that's not exactly the picture that they paint. That the productivity of the land will be shared by your deadly enemies who will be using it to kill you. It doesn't read like that. So, is it clearly a fulfillment of that prediction? Not clearly. Not clearly. Furthermore, this country gets 10% of its yearly budget from the United States. And another 5%, 10% from Jewish charity all over the world. The picture of productivity that the, papers, the prophets uh, give us is one of such ex- exuberant overproduction that will be awash in wealth. That's not exactly what's going on here with a 10% unemployment rate. And the 20% of the people below the poverty line. So is this clearly a fulfillment of what the prophets said? No, no, it's not clear. Not clear. There's enough gray to uh, to make it difficult. Settling the land and occupying it and defending it has been accompanied by obvious miracles. That's what Group Five will say. And clearly, if God is supporting it with miracles, He must want it. He must think that it's right. He must think that it's good. Doesn't that prove that it's the beginning of the Messianic era? Six will say no. First of all, God has done miracles for our bitter enemies. Sanherith, when he crossed the Jordan River to attack us, the Jordan stopped and let him pass on dry land, just as it did for Joshua. Does that mean that religious Jews at that time should have joined Sanherith's army to try to destroy Jerusalem? <coughs> Probably not. That's probably not the right conclusion. Second of all, even if God is in favor of protecting the inhabitants of Israel and doing so via miracles, that doesn't mean it's the beginning of the Messianic era. Here's another possibility. Now, I'm stressing, and there are tapes here to prove it. This is a possibility. I don't think this is right. I'm just saying this to open your mind. It's possible that after the Holocaust... With the people in such shock, decimated, dispirited, depressed, disoriented, that God said, you need a crutch. So I'm giving you a crutch. Let me tell you, if you break your leg, you'll be very, 
thankful for crutches. I broke my leg eight years ago, and I learned to use crutches, and they were very, very useful. But you don't celebrate the crutch. You celebrate the day you throw away the crutches. So the fact that God is prepared to support the land of Israel, the state of Israel, the people of Israel with miracles, does not mean that, doesn't necessarily mean that it is the beginning of the Messianic year. That's roughly how the debate goes between the two groups. Oh yes, I have two more points to make. Back to the Herschel group for a minute. The Herschel group faces a, a, a very excruciating dilemma. Because, on the one hand, they want a modern, secular state on a par with France and Germany and America. But on the other hand, in some sense, it's supposed to be a Jewish state. And it isn't really neutral, legally. As I suppose you know, there's a law of return which says that any Jew, anywhere automatically get citizenship if he wants it. That's not true for anybody else. And how will the state be related to Jewish history? Is the state in any way the flowering of Jewish history, the fulfillment of Jewish history? So what, group, what this group has done, group one, the Herzl group has done, is to create deep, systematic, historical lies. So as to blind the population into an intellectual fog where they don't appreciate the discontinuity between them and Jewish history. Here's one example. Hadikva Shnot Alpayim Lehiot Am Choshibi The theme song of Israel, the anthem. Our hope of 2,000 years to be a free nation in our land. Now let's think. 400 years ago, in Polish ghettos, what were the people dreaming of? Were they dreaming of a democratically elected Knesset? Were they dreaming of soccer games on Shabbos? Free cheeseburgers? Cookouts on Yom Kippur? Is that what they were dreaming of? and medieval Spain, and in Babylon, and in North Africa. What were they dreaming of? They were dreaming of the coming of the Messiah. They were dreaming of the rebuilding of the temple. They were dreaming of the day in which the whole world will know that the Torah is true and God is one. There is a religious figure today who says that you could make the song kosher by changing one word. Don't say the Yot Am Say Liyot Am Kadosh Not to be a free nation in our land, but a holy nation in our land. That would be more historically correct. Read with some depth, I would say it would be completely historically correct. But that isn't what they wrote. What they wrote is Am Chashibi that is completely divorced from the hopes of 2,000 years. But you have to say it because otherwise there's no connection. I'll give you another example. Um, the Greeks introduced certain ideas, certain practices, which have survived to the current day. 
One of them is the Olympic Games. Regular international sports competitions. Now, you've probably heard of the Maccabees. The Maccabees fought to expel the Greeks from Israel. The Assyrian Greeks also, and, not, and also there were Jews who became Hellenized at the time, and it was really a civil war. So the Maccabees were opponents of Greek culture, right? Okay, now every several years in Israel, there's an international sports competition. What is it called? Games. The Maccabean Games. Do you get it? They took the name of the group that was anti-Greek and used it for the contemporary expression of Greek culture. That's not an accident. That's propaganda. So now, who are the Maccabees? Well, clearly, they must have been sportsmen, right? I mean, because this is the Maccabean Games. They must have been warriors. They must have been, you know, sort of like us. In fact, there was a, an article, I think, in Ma'ariv about 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, a very ironical, bitter article. I was the biggest non-religious newspaper uh, in the country. It was Hanukkah time. And this author, this journalist, in, made up a dialogue between the child and his father. The child says to his father, Abba, were the Maccabees Dati'im? Religious? father says, Dati'im? No, of course not. What are you talking about? They were fighters. They were soldiers. They, they went into the forest and they fought the Assyrians and they chased them out. So the child says, but Abba, in school they taught us that they were Kohanim and that they cleaned the temple and that they, they lit a menorah. That, that's, why, that's why people like menorahs on Kanta. Isn't that true? So the father says, oh, well, yeah, I guess the menorah, yeah. No, he's connected to Hanukkah. That's what they taught me, I guess, many years ago. And, um, well, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess they were that thing. So the child says, Abba, do you think that the Maccabees kept Shabbos? So, uh, the father says, well, I, I guess if they were that thing, they must have kept Shabbos. And do you think they kept Kashrus? They kept Kashrus. And do you think they celebrated Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot? And it goes down the list of mitzvahs. Finally, the child says to the father, but Abba, we don't keep Shabbos, do we? No, we're not that team. What are you talking about? And we don't keep kashas and we don't celebrate the holidays. Right. And the last question is this. The child says to his father, Abba, if we had been living in those times, which side would we have been on? And that is a bitter question. Because modern Israeli society probably owes more to Greece than it does to Torah. And then if Moses and Socrates would come back now and look at modern Israeli society, Socrates would be much more satisfied than Moses. So, how do you overcome that historical gap? You take the word Maccabee and you apply it to the games and then you close it. Because now the Maccabees were Greeks. So if the contemporary Israeli is a Greek, and the Maccabees were Greeks, then they're historically connected. No problem. It's just that it's a lie. It's illustrative of the difficulties that the Herzl group finds itself in. Okay, now I promise you some remarks from the army, and I'll take about 10 or 12 minutes to do that, and then we'll have time for questions.
First of all, I want you to, under, to know that the majority of, the vast majority of religious Jews do fulfill their army obligations. First of all, you have the Mizrahi group, with, in which group almost everyone fulfills their, their obligations. And then you have the other group, the question mark group, which is split. Some do and some don't. Everyone in this yeshiva, so far as I know, fulfills his army obligations. There are some people here who are not Israeli citizens. They don't have any army obligations. But those who are citizens, there's no one here, as far as I know, who is in violation of the Israeli draft law. So when I describe to you the reasons for those who don't join the army, I'm not speaking for me, I'm not speaking for the yeshiva, I'm not speaking for anybody you know. I'm talking about that far-right group, the ultra-Orthodox fanatics, but we'd like to understand them. Now, I'm not going to finish the subject. There are other arguments that I won't have time to give you, but here are a few for you to think about. I know that's very atypical for this subject, but I'm suggesting you do it anyway. Um, in 1977, our family was here for six months. I had a sabbatical. We came here for six months. And a friend of mine, who was a professor at Harvard, Robert Nozick, was here at the same time. We had some contact over the year. He threw a party one of the Shabbos and invited my wife and my uh, niece to, to join. So we came. The minute I walked in the door, it was open season on Gothic. I was the only Haredi person there. So there wasn't anybody else religious there. So it was two and a half hours of shooting of a shouting match. In the middle, a professor of social relations at the Hebrew University said to me, you and your people are guaranteed the destruction of the state of Israel. I said, why? He said, because you don't allow your women to fight in the army. And although we have better training, better morale, better armaments, against an overwhelming enemy population, that'll hold you just so long. And sooner or later, imbalance of numbers is going to crush us. And you're bringing that day closer by not letting your women serve in the army. I must tell you, I'd never heard the point put that way before. I didn't have a ready answer. But I had great shouts from my Kurdish Baruch who gave me a great gift. So I said to him, what is your position on abortion? He said, abortion? Every woman has the right to do with her body as she pleases. So I said to him, every woman that has an abortion, 17 years later, is one less soldier for the army. So he said to me, you're a Nazi. <laughs> wow, I said, well, I did that pretty fast. How about that? Why am I a Nazi? He said, because you seem to think that a woman's body is the property of the state, and the state can do with it as it pleases. Now, I could have said back, and when you put someone in the army, by law, against his will, to go out and shoot a gun and die, you're not doing with his body as you please? But all right, I didn't think of that at the time. What I said to him was this. So what are you telling me? You're telling me that your private value of abortion on demand is more important than the security of the state. My private value to protect the virtue of my women is less important than the security of the state. Who told you that your private value is more important than my private value? 
and he had the good grace in public to admit that I was right. Which means security is not anybody's top value. Security is not anybody's top value. Everybody's prepared to sacrifice security for one thing or another. So then, if you have no way to prove your private values are the right ones, which a secularist surely does not, then there's no reason for them to be complained that we don't put security first either. That's why. Secondly, if you are a soldier in the army, you can be ordered to kill someone. You might wonder who's giving the order. And what values they represent. And what worldview they represent. A soldier told me that in the 1973 war, he was told by his commander, we do not take prisoners. And at one point during the war, he had captured a bunch of Arabs, and they were lying on the floor with their heads behind their heads, without weapons. And the commander came by and said, why are they still breathing? Shoot them all. And he shot them all. Is that necessarily right? By whose values? By what laws? By what standards? Now, if you are a religious person, and you go into the army, and the commander is not religious, you may very well be ordered to do things that are religiously wrong. And that puts you in a moral dilemma. And some people say, I'm sorry, but morally, I can't put myself in that kind of dilemma. That's a second consideration. A third consideration, the most excruciating, most excruciating appeal is from a mother who will say, or a father, or a father, my son goes out to face bullets so that your children can be safe. We are bearing the danger and the loss of the deaths of our children so that your children can be safe. Is that fair? But I want to ask a parallel question, a common question. There are soldiers who work in intelligence. Do they carry guns? Are they on the front? Are they shot at with bullets? There are soldiers in the medical corps. Now, some of them are out there facing bullets, trying to save soldiers on the field. But doctors aren't doing that. Doctors are in hospitals, treating the wounded. They're not only shooting at the doctors. What about the soldiers in the Demona area who are affecting the atomic... Uh, I don't want to let that out. <laughs> they're, 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 well, I guess CNN has reported it, so everybody knows it. We're protecting our atomic bombs. Anybody shooting at them? So how come this mother and father have their soldier in mortal danger in Lebanon, and that mother and father, secular, anti-religious, have their son protected in Hakiriyah, in, in, in Ramadan, eight stories underground, deciphering enemy messages? Why is it fair that these should face death and that one should not face death? They say, well, come on, you know, an army runs on, on division of labor and you take people for the best things they can do. That's more important than life and death? 
Well, if it is, then maybe life and death isn't so important. Or maybe the protest should be a little more generalized. Maybe the positions in the army should be given by lot. Or even better, there should be rotation. Send the intelligence officers out to face the bullets every six months. And send the bullet faces back to do intelligence every six months. So that everybody's life is equally on the line. I never heard anybody who thought that was a good idea. <coughs> but if so, then the complaint doesn't belong only in our door. Or there's something odd, funny about the complaint. One more consideration, and I'm finished. Now, these three that I just gave you are all aimed at the secularist critique in terms of his own values, in terms of his own assumptions. This last one it doesn't fit that bill exactly. It's a different kind of response. We believe, we're starting from our, our side now, we believe that in order to win a war, we have to deserve it. Yes, we need an army. Yes, we need tanks. Yes, we need airplanes. Yes, we need soldiers. But we also have to deserve them. Deserve it means living up to the total. About 30% of this country is contributing to deserving it. The other 70% couldn't care less. Now you want that 30% to go into the army also? then you're placing a double burden on the 30%. Why not distribute the burden fairly? I have a proposal. Let every child in this country spend two years in religious education. And I don't mean taught by people trained at the Hebrew University who are ignoramuses and negatively disposed. <laughs> religious education. I won't even ask that they keep mitzvahs and be, and be religious. Just that they get two years of full-time religious education. And then take everybody into the army. Everybody. From deepest, darkest, mayor's arm, everybody. I used to make this suggestion for the past 20 years and say, I only mean it as a joke. No one will take it seriously. But one of the Aguda Kabre Knesset made exactly this suggestion last year. I think he must have heard my take. <laughs> but it's true. It's a joke when he says it also. No one's going to take it seriously. But it does illustrate the fact that there's a double burden here. And it's not fair to put a double burden on one, part, on one part of the population. Now, what will the secularist say back? He'll say, I don't believe that you're contributing to security. I don't believe that keeping kosher and keeping Shabbos has anything to do with security. Okay, good. So he doesn't believe it, and I do believe it. But has he any proof that his beliefs are right? Can he prove there was no Sinai? Can he prove that there is no creator? No, he cannot. So he has chosen a belief system in which I'm not contributing. Let's suppose, this isn't really right, but let's suppose I've chosen a different belief system. Is that a reason for him to throw a brick at me? Because he's chosen one belief system, and I've chosen a different belief system, and he, can't prove, he cannot prove that his, his choice is right. But that being the case, I'm living out the consequences of my belief system, and he's living out the consequences of his belief system. Why does he look at me as a traitor? Just because I don't agree with him? That's not a very good reason. From our point of view, it looks something like this. You invite uh, an Australian Aborigine to the United States, and he's doing this survey of people's work. 
He sees some people laying roads, and he sees some people building houses, and he sees some people weaving rugs, and some people weaving clothing, and some people building bridges, and some people giving massages, and some people um, uh, harvesting wheat and making cereal and transporting things in trucks. And then he takes a trip to Washington, and he, and he is invited to the Capitol, and he sees people sitting in a very ornate building, talking. All they do is talk. They talk all day long. So he says to the Americans, what do they work at? Are they weaving rugs at night? Are they, uh, you know, laying roads at night? Or what, what do they work at? And they listen, we have a government and a democracy, and they set the rules and the laws and stuff and so on. And the Aborigine says, listen, come on. You're trying to fool me, right? I mean, these guys are just talking. They're not doing anything. They're not building anything. They're not producing anything. They're getting a free ride. This must be your nobility or something. They're getting a free ride because they're not doing anything. He said, no, no, no. It's organization and it's rules and it's laws and it's conventions and it's, you know, how the country runs. He says, you know, that's just chatter. That doesn't make any sense. Where's the product? If I don't see a product, then you're lying to me. You're just, you're just fooling yourself. Now, what would you, after a while, you give up. You say, listen, he's an aborigine and he can't understand democracy. So, I can't explain it to him. That doesn't mean he's right. I pity him, but I don't have to agree with him. And exactly the same spirit, someone who says that keeping Shabbos and, and keeping cautious doesn't help the war effort, but I don't see you shooting bullets. Where are your bullets? If I don't see bullets, you're not doing anything. I say to him, you're aboriginal. You have to see a physical product, right? Without that, you don't believe in anything. Well, I'm sorry. You're out of touch with reality. I can't convince you. I can't convince you, but I don't have to change my practice from my side, because you don't appreciate the reality. Now, what the answer does this time is not to convince him. I can't convince him. But if he's fair, he ought to realize that he has no objective critique of me. He has chosen a belief system in which I'm wrong. But he chose it. There's no proof it's right. I have a belief system in which I'm not wrong. And he should appreciate the logic of that. He should be able to say that if I were religious like you, I would agree with you. In which case, the sting of his critique, I think, is removed. He's now just expressing his personal preference for a particular ideology for which he has no proof. Okay, that's my summary of the points of Zionism, which I thought was relevant. Yeah. Um, what about uh, the religious, uh, <coughs> the religious factors, not the Mizrahis or the Muslims, but quasi-religious don't, don't, don't stick me with that vocabulary. I would not say that the Zerachi is quasi-religious with quotation marks or anything. But anyway, what about them? What are you asking? No, I just wanted to know how the religious, this, the group that expressed in, in, in Israel would be. How much, how much would they say? Because I've, I've heard some things I heard you applauding about. You know, like the Haredi or, or whatever, uh, ultra-Orthodox Synagnosis. I'm not quite sure what the question is. There are 17 members of the Shas movement. There are five of Abuda. There are, how many of Mizrahi? Another five, I think. And, uh, and each one is a party. It represents certain people, represents certain interests, and they lobby for their interests, like every party in a state. Is it a bad thing or is it a good thing? Um, the, the Mizrahi attitude is, it's a good thing, it's a positive thing, it is what God wants, because he wants the state to be the foundation of the Messiah. <coughs> 
the Aguda position, that's with the mystery group, and I let their names slip up. Boy, am I sloppy tonight. Uh, the Aguda position is that it is a necessary evil. Of course it's bad. It's bad like injections are bad. You know, it's bad like diets are bad. Uh, it's just, but we can't do without it. We've got to do it, but because we have no better choice. Any wrongdoing makes us look terrible. There's no question about that. But I want you to know, I want you to know that in this country, um, Uh, Rabin was prime minister in the 70s. He dropped out because his wife had an illegal bank account. The wife of the prime minister had an illegal bank account. It took 20 years for people to forget it. Then they forgot it and became prime minister again. Now you ask yourself, how could it be that the prime minister, the prime minister will have an illegal bank account? How could that be? The prime minister of the country! Here's the answer. Every last one of them is corrupt. And only 3% get caught. So each one says, if only 3% are getting caught, I've got a very good chance of winning. I've got a very good chance of not getting caught. A woman was, was appointed, was nominated to be the Attorney General of the United States. Attorney General of the United States. And during her confirmation hearings, it was discovered that she had an illegal worker at home. Right. Attorney General, the chief law enforcement agent of the entire United States, has an illegal worker in her own home. I mean, is that absurd? How much money could she possibly be saving? She's got to be very wealthy to be even offered this job. Right. No, but she's saving $50 a week, you know. You can't give that up. I want my Filipino. But, you know, right? Well, how could she possibly do it? The answer is that every one of them is corrupt and only 3% gets caught. So she said, I have a very good chance of not getting caught. So if, if, they get, if a person gets caught, you have to know that you hit the tip of the iceberg. Every last one of them is one way or another. And I think, on the average, our people are outstanding. But the press and the rest of the country is dead set against us. So if there's any scandal whatsoever in our camp, it will make front pages look. When Arya Derry who, by the way, might be innocent. It's not clear that he's guilty. But when he was being tried for two years, and they convicted him on $75,000, right? the past president of the country had, mis had, had um, uh, inappropriately taken on board $600,000. He was never tried, and he was retired in good uh, um, uh, honor, and he gets his pension, and people, uh, but, but he's not Sunni, and he's not religious, so we sort of turn the blind eye and, uh, and and let it go. So even if he were wrong, he'd be a tiny minority, and and with seventy five thousand dollars, you talk to any other politician and tell you, you know, that's peanuts. Why isn't the guy really in business? So uh, it's, it's it's really not serious. Yeah. Um, Because
because uh, the, the question will be how to realize the possibility. It, when you say it's possible, it doesn't mean and it'll happen all by itself if, if it happens. It means it has the potentiality to become and we have a responsibility to make it that way. Now, maybe the best way to make it that way is to oppose it with all your strength so as to force it to reform. From time to time, I talk with uh, religious Jews who don't want to become Israeli citizens because they don't want to give their support to the secular state, which they claim uh, is opposing religious Jewry here. A consequence of that is that uh, they don't vote in the elections because they're not citizens, and uh, neither do their children. And we in the religious community do have a lot of children. So by by withholding... uh, by withholding this contribution to the election, the elective process, aren't they uh, fulfilling their own negative prophecy? Because if they if they were to vote in the elections, and if their children were to vote in the elections within one or two generations, we'd have a religious majority. <laughs> um, I, it's an interesting argument. It's an interesting argument. Of course, one could respond, let's wait until we're a majority. I mean, why, why do it in the interim until we're ready to take over? Um, if that's, if that's, and I think that probably the population is a little more imbalanced than you make, imbalanced you're making out. I don't think we're that close to a majority. Uh, by the way, in this city, uh, many groups will allow voting in local elections, just not in national elections. Because the city of Jerusalem should have its own government and should determine its own, its own uh, future, irrespective of who's running the national government. So many of the Haredim in Bashar vote in the city elections. That's why we're close to having a religious mayor, because uh, the population in Jerusalem is really approaching uh, 50-50. But uh, uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting question. I, I, as I say, naturally, I don't think we're, that we're, we're, uh, we're near that yet. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, May 6th last year, I marched in the New York uh, parade for Israel, and I was marching next to some people that were from Texas, and I said, what shul do you belong to? And they said, we belong to the something-something church. How do you deal with these people? I mean, I know that they have ulterior motives, but, I mean, are we supposed to use them as allies in establishing a state, or are we, are we, is there something wrong with that, besides, you know, trusting Tony Soprano as your business partner? <laughs> <laughs> uh... I, I, can't, I can't speak with authority on this, but there is, let me put it this way, there are, I know of some sources that, that uh, express caution. If you allow non-Jews to become supporters of your, of your, um, your project, then you risk diluting the purity of the project. And uh, I'm just, so I think it's a question that should be very seriously considered. But they're not going to consider it, the people running the country. It's money for them, you know. If it's green, it's good. Yeah. I know that what we do is so right, and that, and that the fact that so many people running yeshiva and have big families is a very good thing. But how does one respond to somebody like Tommy Lopid, who, who is constantly raving and ranting about how how the, how the ultra-Orthodox are living, and the Orthodox are living off the law tables of our money. Um, first of all, my guess is it isn't true. 
Yes, it isn't true. That the, the Haredi community as a whole probably brings in far more money than it takes in, um, in uh, welfare. And a large proportion of the Haredi community come from Chutzlars. And when they come from Chutzlars, they are at, at 100% plus for this country. They come, they fly in El Al, and the relatives come to visit them, and they rent, they rent apartments, and they buy clothes here, and they go to the pizza shops here. They're spending American money here. So if you're talking about the Haredi population as a whole, I don't think that that's, uh, that that's correct. Um, I'm talking about the citizens of the state, not necessarily the, the people that come to visit from Torah. The majority of the poor people are, are not wealthy. I wonder if you couldn't take any other population, any other population, which is uh, impoverished immigrants, let's say, or, or, the, or the blacks in New York. It's, but you can't compare. It's different when you're comparing from Jews to, to blacks in New York because we're supposed to have a different stature, a different. Oh, but now we're now we've really shifted the argument, haven't we? And Tommy Lapid shouldn't be saying that religious Jews have to live up to a higher standard and have a different stature than other citizens. That should not be Tommy Lapid's position, right? Tommy Lapid is supposed to be a Democrat and treats everybody equally, right? And I don't think that he would, if he, if he had a, a depressed Sephardi area or a depressed Ethiopian area of immigrants or a depressed Arab area, that he would be upset that they're all living on the, on the welfare of the state. I think what he would say is, we have a democratic country, we make rules for, for welfare, and uh, those people are unfortunate enough to be living at that standard of, of living. Um, we, our, our rules say that they should receive, uh, that they receive welfare. And if they volunteer to be poor and suffer, then our rules include them as well. There are ways around this. There are ways around this. And I personally happen to support them. And that is, that the government should provide work, and that no one should do any charity if he doesn't work. That should be the standard United States. That's what that's what Clinton tried to do, and in some places he in some places succeeded in, in enforcing it. And and the the people on the official welfare rolls decreased dramatically. And they can do the same thing here. You're not getting anything unless you work. Put in a day's work. But then I would want to know exactly what kind of work do professors of literature do? Or soccer players, or violin players. What kind of work do they do? What are they producing? They too are not shooting bullets at the Arabs and paving roads and so on and so on. They do have that here in Israel. Now what? Oh yeah, yeah. Not even enough to buy food, let alone. The, but but then, if that's the case, if you believe that producing culture is also a worthwhile activity and every one of those activities is supported by the government. Every one of them. Music is supported by the government. Sport is supported by the government. It all comes from government money. Well, I think that producing religion is a cultural part. By the way, I want you to know about ten years ago, whichever election that was, when the left ran on an explicit let us stop Judaism platform many non-religious people voted for Mizrahi on the grounds that I'm not religious but there have to be some religious people here you can't drive them out of the country we don't want a country that's, that's you know lost its tie to, to, to the Jewish heritage altogether so if you regard it as a cultural contribution then in principle it shouldn't be different from supporting all the other cultural contributions 
which they forget about when they talk about slush funds for yeshivas. Yeah. No, I didn't say that. He asked why, if we could, uh, by the virtue of increased population, take over through voting, why don't we have the vote? He asked why we don't do that. Look how something can get completely flipped around. So I didn't answer him why we don't do it, because I don't know why we don't do it, but I said that since we don't have the population now, it's not a question for now. But I'd like my, my position to be understood and not flipped around to the exact opposite. Yeah. For example, in Poland, we had it in, you know, years ago, when First of all, yeah, first of all, you have the wrong group because the group that had it in in Poland was Agudat Israel, which also has it here. So they have a consistent position, actually. And I don't know that there were Satma Hasidim in Poland. They came from Hungary, actually. And I don't know if there were any Hasidic groups in in, in Poland that didn't vote in the in the, in the election. But having said that, just to get the history straight, it really isn't analogous. Because from our point of view, there is nothing illegitimate about the Polish government, Poland. The Poles have a right to a government, and it's not, in those days it was a democratic government. They have a right to the government and live as they please. Whereas a non-religious Jewish government in Israel is totally illegitimate. Sorry, I, I'm sorry, I meant the word, I, you're right, I meant the word differently. I meant a government of Jews. A government of Jews running a Jewish population in, in a state, in, in the a ge- geography of the ancient Israeli state, that is totally illegitimate. How could it be legitimate if the Torah doesn't mandate it? How could anything be legitimate, legitimate if it goes against the standards of the Torah? What's the standards of legitimate? Who are we talking to now? We're not talking to Tommy Lapid. Yeah. Tach and what was the second part? What was the Tach is, uh, I would say, a variant on Mizrahi. It's a variant on Mizrahi. Um, and uh, I, I want to say one thing because. Uh, I'm not really competent to go into their position in detail. But the, probably of everything we said tonight, this is probably the most important. The most important principle of Jewish life is that it's not Esther. It's not every man in his own boat sailing in his own direction. There is a Torah. And that Torah is a set of objectively right values. And there are people who know that Torah best, understand it best, integrate it best, represent it best. And they are the only people who are qualified to be leaders. And no one is qualified to be a loose cannon. You know what a loose cannon is? On ships in the 19th century, 18th century, you had cannons on deck. And they shot. There's other, other ships and the land. And the cannons were bolted to the floor because the ships rocked with the ocean. And if one became came unbolted, as the ship rocked, this thing of metal weighing tons 
rolls from one end of the ship to the other, smashing everything in its wake. That's a loose cannon. A person says, I studied the weekly Parsha, and I actually learned three or four Mishnahis. So I'm just as good an expert as everybody else, and I have my view. That is totally incompetent. Totally incompetent. And you wouldn't trust it in auto mechanics, and you wouldn't trust it in medicine, and you wouldn't trust it in aerodynamics, and you wouldn't trust it in, in money management, and you wouldn't trust it in alcohol, agriculture, and you shouldn't trust it here either. So, the critique of Kach, that I think is the most important critique, is that no one in the leadership ever said yes. No one in the leadership ever sanctioned them. And Rabbi Kahana, as great as he was in other ways, is not one of the great leaders of the generation. Was not one of the great leaders of the generation. So I think that was the chief, the chief weakness here. Yeah. Um, if one had like an opportunity to spend three years in the army or three years in yeshiva, I would suggest that you meditate on how you could make the biggest, most long-lasting contribution to the Jewish, to the future of the Jewish people over the rest of your life through what you're doing in those three years. And if you do that, and you do it in light of Torah sources, I think it, the answer will become very clear. Yeah. Uh, how come you didn't uh, mention the tarot card straight out? For most people here, it's just another meaningless term to have to remember in a lecture, and it just makes it more confusing. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> you're right. It's an historic card. Yeah. Uh, no, no, yeah, that gives no sense. Okay. Uh, Rabbi, talking about uh, you know, Bergson and his view about how European Jewry was secularizing and assimilating, did he know Bergson in any way take them to account with Jewish life in North Africa and the Middle East, Yemen, that area, or was he purely looking at the European part of Syria? That's a very good question. I, uh, I don't know enough about. <laughs> the writings that I have seen of his have not mentioned uh, uh, Sephardi jury in particular, but his, his main motivation was that Jews are suffering from anti-Semitism, and the only practical solution to anti-Semitism is to have our own state. So I would imagine that he would extend his principles to uh, North African jury as well. But I'm not aware that he ever... That he ever um, um, took explicit account of it. And I'm not aware, maybe someone can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not aware that the Zionist Congresses in Europe had uh, serious representation from, from North African Jewry. It was really, I think, a European movement. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, Jewish anti-Zionists uh, blame Zionism for the Holocaust. And uh, it, was, it was said so on the Netflix Carter website. Now, if you, if you believe that, uh, that uh, the Holocaust was a judgment by God against the Zionists, uh, you would expect that the Holocaust would be most severe here in Israel. The Nazi soldiers, in fact, never got here. When uh, rebel soldiers were smashing through the British forces in North Africa, and the anti-Zionists were surely saying, see, I told you we were right, and in short order, the uh, Zionists will be crushed like, like a bug. Now, uh, rebel forces got as far as Egypt, they drank the water, got diarrhea, and lost a major battle at that time. Thank you. So the, uh, the Jews who, uh, in, in the opinion of the anti-Zionists, threw the Torah into the garbage. They came here to found the state, were spared the Holocaust. Meanwhile, the Jews have stayed behind in Europe and went through the ringer. How did the anti-Zionists explain that? I think that... Um 
as I told you, by the way, by the way and, and you said it correctly, you know, we're talking about them, not about us. We don't have the position. But, uh, you know, in life, it often happens that you have a value, and then you have a second value, and because the two values may conflict in a particular case, you have to choose one over the other. Now, it could be that you are uh, putting Zionism through the ringer and, uh, and other non-religious movements through the, through the ringer, but the concentration of leaders of the Jewish people is so crucial, the ones that were in Israel at the time, that although you could have killed a lot of Zionists that way, you would have also killed people who were too precious, too valuable for the future of, of Judaism uh, to tolerate. But that sounds like a terrorist. It's not a, it's not a very strong argument. I don't know. It's a good question. And they must have an answer. I don't know what it is. It's a good, yeah, I, I don't know. It's a, good, it's a very good question. Yeah. Last question. I'm going to go. Going to the army, you're not going to the army, not necessarily going to yeshiva as a direct alternative, but you know, going to the workforce, say, as opposed to the army. Um, I heard notions that the army may not be such a, a spiritually uh, uh, conducive place to spend your time. Uh, this is 100% true. You know, at the same party that I mentioned in 1977, I made such a remark, and uh, the people said, oh, come on, you think it's all wild in the army, so on. And then one of the people there was a colonel in the army, said, listen, you know, I'm not religious, so you can believe me, but um, <laughs> I ran a base, he said. I ran an army base. And this, he's right, he told, he told the group, when he came to take over the army base from the previous commander, he said to the commander, how are relations between the men and women on the base? So the, the, the old commander said to him, just a moment then I'll show you. Then he called in his secre secretary, listen to this, he calls her in, Bowie Haina Mavala, Come here, little girl. That's how he calls in his secretary. That's the respect for the women in the army. Come on in, little girl. And she comes in and he, and he says to her, Tell me, are any of the women not sleeping with the men? And she said, Of course not. Of course we're all sleeping with the men. <laughs> right? That's how it was. So he said, In this respect, now, but it's worse than that. My brother-in-law is in the army. And uh, he told me that uh, one Friday around noon, uh, the, the, the religious soldiers had asked for permission to go home for Shabbos. And the commander came in and said, yes, you give him permission, get on the buses, leave in a half hour. Fine, get on the buses, they sat there for an hour and a half, and then he came and said, no, permission is canceled, uh, you have to stay in the base for shops. Hour later, no, we gave you permission, get on the buses, they got on the buses, they sat for an hour and a half, and said, no, you have to stay in the base for shops. That was just harassment. That's all. Just harassment. And he that sort of thing goes on, you know, right and left. So, uh, don't let anybody tell you that it's a picnic um, in the army. Religious unit, not religious unit, it, uh, it's, a rough, it's a rough life. Okay. <laughs>